Arf, Pup Akis here with The Dog Dish, a podcast all about puppy play and the humans behind the hoods. In this episode, I bark with a pup and a human to get different perspectives on the importance of mental health and its connection with human puppy play. A quick content note before we pounce. Due to the subject matter in this episode, there will be general discussions of experiencing trauma, both individual and collective, coping with depression, and preventing suicide. If this isn't a good time for you to put some thought into those topics, you might want to skip this episode for now. More specifically, late in the episode, there's a brief discussion of the traumatic events at Wilton Manor's Pride 2021. I'll give a heads up when we get there to help you skip past if you want. All that said, this episode digs into a vitally important topic that needs more attention in our community. The conversations are a bit on the serious side, but that's appropriate for the content. I hope you enjoy this discussion and that you feel clarity and support through listening. First, let's hear from Pup Dodger. I'm Pup Dodger. I was the first Michigan puppy in 2016, Great Lakes puppy 2017, and IPTC International puppy 2017. Dodger competed in IPTC 2017 on a platform of mental health awareness. He says it took him a long time to feel comfortable opening up about the topic in the community because of the stigma often placed on people dealing with mental health issues. COVID might have normalized mental health discussions a bit, but we'll get into that later with our second guest. For now, here's Dodger's explanation of why the pet play community struggles to address mental health topics. I think that when it comes to puppy play, um, a lot of people that have mental health issues are seen as very different, um, maybe in a way more angry or hard to be around at times, mm-hmm. um, which can make it very hard um, in the puppy community. If you know people think that you're that type of person that's angry or hard to be around, it, it kind of makes them shy away from you. And, and within the pet play community, we're all about you know, building community and connecting with other people. And if you're seen as someone who is difficult to connect with, that makes it tough for that goal, I guess, to work. Yes. Am yeah, I on the right track? Absolutely. Okay. In other words, Dodger has seen members of our community, people who come together because we're different from mainstream, avoid other people on the grounds of being different from mainstream. As for how that works. It's really hard to explain. The stigma comes based on your interactions with people. And that's where where the issues come from. Um, and people start to look at others differently. I mean, I've had issues in the past um, with my mental health within the community. And it's, I mean, I'll be candid. It's caused some issues um, before. And, you know, people finding out then that the reason behind that is because of mental health issues then makes them, if they know that anyone else has them, kind of shy away. So how might we remedy that situation? So, I mean, everyone that has a mental health issue is different, but if you're experiencing someone that does have some sort of mental health issue that they're having a difficult time, they're getting more angry and riled up. Maybe it's something you said, maybe it's a way you touched them, something that just doesn't register well with them. Honestly, trying to back away a little bit, um, see if, you know, there's someone that they're with that can take them to the side um, and discuss with them what's going on. Just give them that safe space. 
um, away from the rest of the uh, pets, that's one really good way to deal with um, if you notice someone going through stuff like that. Um, also, people have to understand that there are quite a few pets that do have mental health issues. And a, a lot of that is because with pet play, you're kind of escaping from reality in your everyday life. Um, you're putting on, you know, a hood or some sort of um, gear most of the time, or just getting down on all fours and playing and it's taking away your everyday stresses and worries. Mm -hmm. um, so people have to understand that as much as there are these issues, it's, it's a healthy way for us to get those things out um, and mm -hmm. not have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. And is there a point at which the, the escapism becomes problematic? Because I, I hear what you're saying where it's, it's healthy and it's good and it's an easy way for us to get away for a bit. Can that become troublesome? I mean, it very well could if you get too deep into it. I, I've had the point where I've gotten too deep in it and people have um, done things, touched me in ways that, you know, I've, I've done or reacted in ways that I don't even remember mm -hmm. um, reacting in. So if, if you get too deep into a headspace, absolutely, um, at least from my experience and in my opinion, it could become an issue. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it could even become potentially dangerous if you're not absolutely if you're not able to remember exactly what happened. Um, so it sounds to me like kind of a, a rule of thumb that I think is already developing in what you're saying here is that pet play is something that you should that anyone should engage in with another person almost all the time because if someone has a, a strong reaction and they need help, um, you suggested earlier, have them get together with somebody that they know, with a friend or with somebody they came with, that sort of thing, to help them process. And then someone should have someone with them who can tell if they're getting into headspace and who can watch out for them and keep them kind of, I want to say in line, but but keep an eye on them and make sure they don't get out of hand or make sure they don't do anything that they shouldn't do. And that's not necessarily that everybody needs that. Um, but if you can, you should be able to recognize that in yourself. Um, or if you have, you know, friends that recognize it in you, those are the people that really need it. Some, some pets don't have those issues and can get out and play on their own and have no problems. Um, but if you recognize that, I, I absolutely would have someone with me. Um, I try every time that I do. And uh, if you're unable to, I mean, generally at most parties, moshes, whatever, there's people there that can, you know, look out for you in general, like they look out for the whole community. Mm -hmm. So there's always somebody around um, that'll be watching out. Um, it sounds to me, though, like if a person goes to one of these events, whatever we call a mosh via Zoom these days, who knows? Right. <laughs> uh, if somebody attends one of these events and they don't have someone with them and they're maybe, let's say, not quite sure how they might react or what they like, how far into headspace they go, that sort of thing. It sounds like they need to, um, at the very least, give a heads up to somebody who is monitoring, monitoring the situation. If not, sit down and have a good conversation with them ahead of time. Uh, so that you can understand what your expectations are and, and what might happen. Absolutely. I would, um, I would definitely give a heads up. Um, if you know for yourself that you, you have these issues, um, definitely gives a, give a heads up. Uh, you don't want something to happen to yourself or somebody else. Um, 
due to those issues. Mm -hmm. Is there a point at which a person should, let's say, forego involving themselves in one of those events because they know that there's likely to be an issue? I think that there are times that you need to recognize it might not be the best thing for you if you're having a really rough time or you know that there's something that hasn't gone well that day, um, you've been triggered by something, it it might not be the best idea for you to get yourself in that situation where you lose, kind of lose control of yourself Mm -hmm. um, and your mind and what you're doing. Um, Generally, when that's the case, I'll just, I may go, but I'll sit on the side and, you know, watch other people, talk to people that are there, but not really get down and play. That's really interesting. I think what I heard you say there was um, pet play allows us to escape from things, which is great. If something that we are trying to escape from was a triggering moment or was something that is particularly acute or problematic, running away from that is a bad idea. And, And there's a difference between escapism and running away. And running away from something is potentially dangerous because you're still in the process of reacting to a thing. But escaping from stuff is a little bit more general, and doing that is healthier. I I agree exactly with what you said, that um, trying to run away from something, if it's, you know, something that's recently happened, or you have these, you're having difficult feelings about um, a situation that's occurred, or maybe someone that's there and present, um, trying to run away from those things and hide them is not always the best thing. You know, almost like relationships, same thing, hiding and running away from things isn't the best thing. Yeah. And escapism is just like escaping the everyday, you know, realities and yes, the everyday problems, but at least my experience escaping those acute problems, um, those problems that you're experiencing right at that moment that may be very triggering or uh, very difficult to deal with is it's going to be hard to do and it can cause more harm than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and escapism is almost like taking a break, sort of like right. putting things on pause for a bit. We know we'll come back. We're just going to take a quick break, but running away is like, no, I'm going to pretend this thing doesn't even exist and I'm going to leave and, and not look at it in terms of a break. And that's when it gets unhealthy. But if we just say, hold, I'll come back to you regular life in a minute. I'm just going to go over here for a bit and kind of take a breather. And that's, that's the more healthy approach. Absolutely. That makes good sense. And I think that's a really like, that's a simple division to kind of keep in mind and a good, a good little uh, litmus test, I guess, for people, you know, if I'm about ready to jump into a puppy event, I need to double check myself real quick. Hey, where am I? Am I escaping or am I running away? And and am I putting things on pause or am I trying to pretend they didn't happen? And then that's a really good quick mental check to make sure you're in the right spot. I like that. We also discussed the idea of warning signs, things that folks in the pet play community should look out for or do in an effort to help identify folks who are struggling with depression and to try and prevent future incidents of suicide. I don't think that there's enough talk of it and enough classes that deal with that type of stuff and, you know, learning what those signs are. I think that's something that, yes, there should be something offered um, for people to get involved and understand what those warning signs are um, and how to look out for those type of things, not even for playing and moshes and stuff, just in general, what those signs are. 
um, since it does seem, as you stated, that there are a lot more people in the pet play community that do get depressed or unfortunately um, commit suicide than I care to see or admit. Um, so I think that there's, there, there's more room or more opportunity for us to talk about those things. Um, that was one big thing during my international title year. It wasn't like I didn't so much necessarily do big things, big events, but people do remember when I would come to events that we would, we would sit down and we would talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd discuss, you know, those type of things and the way to handle those things. Or, you know, I, I'd run into somebody at almost every event that was having some sort of issue and just being able to take them to the side and being able to talk to them. That was what I really felt I did during that year. Everywhere I went, um, there was some sort of conversation around mental health and um, how to handle it, what it's like to go through it, even if it's just sitting there talking with people and telling my story, giving more of an understanding of where those type of people come from. He also suggested having panel discussions about accessibility and the challenges some folks face in actively engaging with the community. For one of the classes, having a a panel discussion um, with people that have mental health issues or different issues in the community, physical ailments, um, that they can they can answer questions that people may have about those things specifically um, rather than just someone standing in front of them saying, these are the warning signs. This is what, you know, you do and look out for. These are your resources actually getting to interact and ask those questions, uh, make it more of a discussion. Mm -hmm. I think that that'll really help people understand a little bit more of where people such as, you know, myself, and are, are coming from and, you know, how difficult it can be at times to deal with things. You know how there's often a puppy 101 class at large events. So folks who have no idea what we do can dip their toe in and learn the basics so they know what kinds of questions to ask. Those classes are everywhere. It's to the point that back in you know, the before times, I would look at an event weekend schedule and say, oh, there's the Puppy 101 class this time. Got it. It was a reliable thing that folks know we can send newcomers to and get the basics. We need the same thing with Escapist Play and Mental Health 101. We need a place where we can send newcomers for the basics of what they need to know about these issues. Discussions of mental health should become so commonplace that we all would have a chance to attend one of those panel discussions or workshops, no matter how many or how few events we attend, no matter how active or reserved we are. I want to go to an event and be able to say, oh, there's the Mental Health 101 class this time. Got it. You hear that, event producers? Let's talk. Speaking of talking, Dodgers suggested that we reach out to mental health experts and hear more from professionals rather than just discussing amongst ourselves. He pointed out that we have therapists in our community and that we should work with those resources. Well, guess who I just found? My name is Michael Gutierrez. Uh, I use they them pronouns. Michael is a licensed clinical professional counselor and certified alcohol and drug counselor who works, among other places, at the Center on Halstead in Chicago. He specializes in, among other things, multicultural counseling, LGBTQIA plus counseling, substance abuse counseling, and the treatment of depressive and anxiety disorders. He's quite familiar with the fetish community and lifestyle, and he certainly works with folks who are, but as he puts it, I don't think I'm technically part of the community. <laughs> eh, we'll run with it anyway. So I am one of the contract therapists at the Center on Halstead. 
So it's my job to kind of help out with any type of issues within the LGBT community. The center in Halton is phenomenal community mental health community center, but also has mental health services. So besides being able to help people out, you know, with any of their mental health issues, helping out trans youth, because we do have youth programs there as well, clothing drives, we do write letters for, you know, different types of surgery. We also do other fun things. So we have hosted, I believe, uh, rubber events in the past, leather events in the past, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, Smart Recovery for those that are, you know, in recovery and things like that. They do soup kitchens and actually have a program to help people out to become professional chefs they want to be. Neat. So it's a nice mental health on probably one of the largest mental health uh, LGBT centers uh, in the country. So I'm happy to be there and promote sex positivity. I asked Michael about that line between healthy play and problematic play, and he melted my little human heart right from the start by going directly for the literature. I'll forever be a nerd and do research science things. Puppy play is actually being studied in London. And there's actually two research articles, I think one in 2007 and one in 2009, that actually went into more of the psychology of puppy play. And ironically enough, it did bring up the concept of relaxation, therapy, but escape itself. Because as we were researching the community and trying to understand more of the community, like I said, it was a common theme that came up. So from what they gained, because like I said, it's always good to have <laughs> actual clinical data. Look at you. They were saying that the role of the handler carries the responsibility of looking after their puppy and puppy, not to provide you know the straightforward relaxing opportunity, but to kind of focus more on kind of the dominant ownership and or care in the vulnerable, playful, and sometimes irresponsible of being others. So it's that subtle relief of kind of life itself that the that, you know the self the role of the handler has. But also when they specifically were talking about being a puppy as well. They said that it appears that being a puppy offers people the opportunity to let go of adult responsibilities and instead embrace a joyful exuberance of unremembered expectations about appropriate behavior as, a, as an adult. So like I said, they definitely have, at least from my knowledge and my experience, really tapped into a lot of what I've noticed has been the draw to some puppy play, whether it's been the role of the handler or actually engaging in it is that it's that relief of pressure from adult responsibility. Mm -hmm. is, is there an inherent danger in doing that? Can that become problematic? Ideally it can, only because the way that they were referring the experience of being in puppy play and the relaxation that it has, they said that it mimics other therapeutic techniques like mindfulness. And the art of mindfulness for people who haven't done a lot of therapy and things of that nature it's kind of allowing your body to naturally release any type of anxiety. You know, whether you've done yoga, whether you've done deep breathing or any of this meditation, it's taking your level of anxiety and letting it naturally soothe out of your body. So ideally, because it's so parallel, there is a concern that people would rely on it too heavily as a form of therapy or coping skill. And the danger of it, which they also can't brought up in the article, was that in puppy play, there is the SNM, the fetish, actual sexual experience as well. So for some people, tying in those two worlds is possible if they're into polyamory and things of that nature, but it's dangerous if they can't distinguish having sex and making love. Because now you're having an emotional attachment to puppy play, but also interviewing sexual intercourse, which could further confuse people. 
So it sounds to me like being able to separate yourself for a bit from things is helpful because it can, as you said, release anxiety and, and, mm-hmm. and like and adult responsibility mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and help people kind of find some focus. And while they're kind of releasing those tensions, bringing something sexual into the mix can confuse our reactions to it and make it so that we're less able to separate out mental health from sexual health or behavioral needs from physical needs? Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up is that when we're discussing other types of the community and fetish and such, there is obviously polyamory. Polyamorous relationships work when there's heavy communication. Oftentimes at the center hall that I have these cute little <laughs> cartoons that break down all the different ways to be attracted to someone. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Michael, what do you mean attracted? I'm like, as we've learned, there's sexual attraction, romantic attraction. You can have crushes or kind of just aesthetically find someone pleasing. But there's multiple ways to want to be close and near to someone. And what's beautiful about polyamory is that it'll let you explore that with people, all however you want to, with different levels of connection. But it's about open communication and really kind of making sure that you have those boundaries set up, which as anyone knows within the community, boundaries is a humongous thing. So it's often a discussion about what your boundaries are before you kind of go into this type of play. So it sounds to me like you're saying we need to negotiate with ourselves about our own internal mental boundaries before we like dive in too far with pet play because we might blur those boundaries. We might lose track of the divisions inside our head. And unless we've negotiated with ourselves to say, this is what I need out of this. This is where I want this to go. This is the situation that I am wanting to work through by engaging in this form of play, we might cross a boundary before we've identified it and we might get ourselves into an unwanted or unwarranted situation. That's fascinating. (laughs) And like I said, a lot of people have already caught on to this realization and kind of, like I said, it's been documented only because it's very similar to when we were very young. We're first having, you know, our first crushes on people and we're going on our first dates. We were back then still trying to learn boundaries and learn what was appropriate for us and what wasn't. We forget that going into this type of play, we're doing the same thing. We still need to allow ourselves to have those middle school problems, but sort out what we're really actually looking for and be intentional. You know, otherwise we might, like you mentioned, be in a situation that we weren't necessarily comfortable with. Okay, you said that we needed to allow ourselves those those middle school problems, I think was the, the phrase you used, um, mm-hmm. which is perfect. If So when we're in middle school, we have these crushes and we have these feelings about either people who are also in middle school or people who are uh, usually inaccessible. Um, but in the case of, of fetish play, people who have these, to use your phrase, middle school problems are right next to people who are more experienced within the community, who are older, who... Um, have been doing this for a while and are very much not at the middle school level to extend this metaphor way past <laughs> what it's designed to support. What kinds of concerns exist when you have somebody with those middle school problems interacting with and engaging with a community of people who are not at that same level? 
does this, you're talking to a, a lifelong professional educator. So now all of a sudden I'm like, oh crap, does this mean that everybody else in the community is a teacher and we all need to um, help care for the middle school problems as though we are adults around the kids kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Ideally, yes. And I say this because, like I said, it's in research and it surprised me that it came up, but I was very happy that it did. Is that what you mentioned before? that within the community itself, not just only kink, but also within the puppy community, it is becoming a community. It is becoming people's second home, second family, second place to be. And within any community dynamic, there is going to be people who are going to be the educators and the wise people and people coming into a new community that essentially need help with expression, help with understanding, help with vulnerability, and help to really start to enjoy and embrace their puppy side of their as puppy side of themselves, which, like I said, holds a responsibility within the community to best help people learn the practices correctly and not to take advantage of the community, you know, for new newer people who are still trying to figure out their puppy persona, et cetera. What kinds of things um, do we need to actively avoid? Uh, like what are, what are warning signs? What are things that are problematic coming from a community? Consent is key. And, kind of reminding people that it is okay to be asking for consent to other people and to be willingly to give it. It's very important to be checking in with people and to have that practice of checking in. Also, depending on, like I said, if you are truly in middle school and know nothing of the community in sorts, self-care and aftercare is definitely super important. And for a lot of people, they tend to get confused. They're like, what does this even mean? I'm like, well, it's different than therapy where, you know, self-care is like going to the spa, going to the gym. When it comes to aftercare, I still view it as self-care because it's what people need to comfort themselves after the actual sexual act, after the things that happened. Like I said, for many people, as we're learning to separate what I say is sex and purely physical with kind of just more kind of making love or having love, which has that emotional connection. Sometimes we do need that aftercare of snuggles, that aftercare of, you know, that making us food and things like that mm-hmm. to not have us either be re-traumatized or traumatized by that distinct push and pull. Because when you're in a scene and leave a scene, it can be very startling to kind of just switch from one to another. And the way you presented that raises a question for me, because if pet play is designed as escapism, if it's designed as mm-hmm. something that makes us comfortable that helps us relax and and process things you just said that aftercare is in your words what you need to comfort yourself if pet play is seen as a thing that we use to reduce anxiety i i can see pet play as being considered a thing that i do to comfort myself and yet you're saying i still need aftercare after it can you tell me what the difference is or how that works or why I should need aftercare after engaging in something that is designed to calm me down. And like I said, it could be different for different people, but when they modeled it similar to the idea of mindfulness and yoga and things like that, they were taking into consideration that these mindfulness activities have this middle point. So if you've ever been through a meditation, ever been to yoga, they kind of have a wind down period. They kind of have a moment where like, you naturally let yourself get attuned to the world, naturally start kind of brightening the lights, naturally letting your body float back into place. So they have this kind of wind down place 
so they can naturally themselves go back into into the world without it being such a starch kind of quick turnover, mm-hmm. which, like I said, sometimes can be difficult if we're considering just sexual endeavors in itself. Because sometimes some sexual endeavors, literally you have sex and then that's it. Mm-hmm. The person just leaves and you're kind of left there. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, being mindful that puppy play does have its escapism, does have its relaxation, we also have to let ourselves ease back out of the puppy play. However, that looks for everybody is different. But allow themselves to ease out of it so that there isn't that starch disconnect. You've said a couple of times that we need, you know, aftercare and processing after a sexual act. And yet the exact same thing applies with a, a kink or fetish scene, even if it's completely asexual, because the mental processes are still there. And, and we can get so deep into feeling a certain way or thinking a certain way or interacting with the world around us in a certain way that we still need that care and, and deliberate mindfulness to bring ourselves back to where we were. Um, and it's not just limited to sexual activity. It can be anything that gets us in a different frame of mind. Are there certain things that kinksters or pet players should be on the lookout for that would help us differentiate between somebody who's here for normal um, escapism, normal um, trying to just relax and and kind of mentally zone out for a bit, and someone who is trying to escape because there is a real problem and someone that we need to be more concerned about, if that's a fair way of phrasing it? No, it definitely is a fair way. And one of the easiest ways to try to begin to kind of question that or try to figure that out is having an understanding that puppy play and a lot of these types of things in the community is to kind of be re- to refer to and linked up, like I said, mindfulness or what ironically would be called in therapy circles, the coping skill or a grounding method. And when we say those things, people are like, oh, okay. So it's like one of the things I can go to if I'm feeling really bad and I kind of just need a breather. Yes. Now, when we say coping skills and grounding techniques, these aren't the tools that are meant to, you know, get rid of your trauma, get rid of your depression, get rid of your anxiety. They're meant to assist you when it's really bad and help you through that difficult moment. It's not meant to be something to rely on or to lean on as if it were medication or more intensive types of therapy. They're meant to help you when things are really bad you need a moment, like you mentioned, to escape. So one of the first warning signs, so to speak, I often would tell people would be looking into how intensely they are playing or how intensely they are engaging in certain types of play. Because like I mentioned before, whether we're thinking just more kink and you're going into like knife play or blood play or things like that, obviously be mindful, be careful. But we have to be going in with, to it with an idea that we're having fun with it, that we're enjoying it, you know, that we're treating it as if we're having fun with it, like marijuana or alcohol. But we're not meant to be abusing it. We're not meant to be pushing certain limits and going too far. So that's oftentimes another time where I'll tell people, check in about the intensity in which they're approaching their play, not only with themselves, but with other people. Because it's meant to be a fun, relaxing, enjoyable thing. It's not meant to be kind of being abused or overused, so to speak. 
that makes a lot of sense and resonates very well with pet play because it is generally seen as, you know, low impact and it is all very much just playful and light and, and simple. Um, and so I can see that, that could be a very, yeah, thank you for that. That's a, that's a really good like litmus test. Are they still being playful about it or are they being intense? And I almost want to say that seriousness is almost a warning sign. I think that's probably mm. painting it too broadly, but that mm. sort of concept that there is a, there's an intentionality behind this play that if we if we lose track of the lightheartedness, it can be a sign of problems emerging. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And um, it's one of the bigger topics and discussions that we have in the mental health realm when we consider, like I said, I, it comes to mind when I think of nice play is when we're trying to distinguish someone who is self-harm or someone that's essentially doing it to hurt themselves more, the suicidality part. And the question that they'll be often asked, are you getting pleasure out of this? Or are you purposely hurting yourself and making yourself feel bad? Because there's a distinguishing thing between the two. So I often tell people that's an awesome mindset you have to have when you are engaging in puppy play. Are you somehow doing this unintentionally to hurt yourself or are you actually doing it as it's supposed to be for a pleasure purpose and that would be really important to bring up for folks who are engaging in or building or living with dynamics with a handler type of person mm-hmm. where it's more possible that the the alpha or handler or dom or whatever word we're going to use here would treat the puppy or critter or sub or whatever word we're going to use there uh, in such a way that makes that person feel bad and and then that should be a warning sign but a lot of times we think oh it's just catharsis i needed to get that out of my system because we like in in the the bdsm community we are surrounded by people who enjoy getting the shit beaten out of them like they will get themselves like openly flogged in the middle of a bar in 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 boys town like i've seen it in chicago myself Mm -hmm. and and yet that's not seen as problematic, even though it physically hurts. So mm-hmm. I could see people with, with the question that you just asked, are you doing this f- for pleasure or are you doing this because it hurts you and because it makes you feel bad? I can see people saying, no, I like it when it hurts. How do we respond to that? Within certain areas and specifically, like I said, when it comes to actual beatings and play, some people have turned their abuse into something pleasurable, essentially to help them through it. And within the trauma community, if their therapist is trauma informed, they mention that it makes sense. And I often would say, what do you mean it makes sense? Well, within the trauma community, we do, we say that there's four trauma responses. It's the four acts and none of them are fun. A quick explanatory comma. He's talking about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn responses. Fight reactions involve aggression, trying to overpower the source of trauma. Flight means trying to escape or get away from the source of the trouble. A freeze reaction means the person is like a deer in headlights. They're incapable of moving or making a decision, no matter how critical movement or choices might be. The fawn reaction is less familiar. It's when the victim of trauma attempts to please or appease the person causing the trauma, thinking if the perpetrator is made happy, then the trauma will disappear. Each of these responses feels like instinct, 
and can be hard to avoid if we've already established a habit of using them. Okay, back to Michael. Now, fawn is the newer one. That's the people-pleasing one. That's the one going into, you know what, this situation is so scary, but I'm just going to lean into it and make them feel better. So that actually would speak to them fawning over and essentially having a trauma response and their way to get themselves out of that unsafe scenario is to say that it's okay and that they're really fine. I'm going to remedy the situation so that we're okay. Obviously, we are living through a collective trauma, which is COVID, but it's also mindful to be careful about playing. Speaking of being careful, here's a heads up that we are about to talk briefly about a shared traumatic experience that occurred in the summer of 2021 at Wilton Manor's Pride. If you want to skip this discussion, fast forward two and a half minutes. Tune in again at the 39-minute mark. All right, for those sticking around, here's a brief overview. A tragic accident occurred minutes after the Wilton Manor's Stonewall Pride Parade stepped off in 2021. When parade officials asked the driver in the second-in-line truck to pull forward because his parade unit was next, the driver started to comply, but then his foot got stuck behind the brake pedal of the truck, forcing the accelerator to the floor. The vehicle lurched forward, crossed four lanes and the median of the parade route before crashing into a landscaping company's trees across the street. The driver was hospitalized, and two members of his parade unit were killed from the impact. That truck was second in line. The South Florida Kennel Club was third in line. Several pups who were there saw everything. I myself was standing about 10 feet away from the back of the truck when it first moved, and I heard several of the resulting collisions. In fact, the group photo we took just prior to parade step-off includes the tailgate of that truck. We were that close. Shared, collective, communal trauma gets particularly tricky to deal with. While the communal nature of it means folks have others they can talk with about the experience they both had, it also means there's a connection between the event and the group. Those of us who gathered in Wilton Manors prepared for a fun event where we could openly represent our kinks. Instead, we experienced shared trauma firsthand. The event itself was shocking enough. Witnessing it while we were expecting something so completely different made it an even harder situation to process. Now here's Michael again on why that gets particularly messy. In the case that you mentioned, what happened at Wilton Pride was that he now experienced a traumatic event while in play, while in your gear. And for some people, they might connect to two things. So they might connect now playing this traumatic incident and might end up having some type of weird anxiety or panic attack and be very confused because now the two scenarios, the two events have not been linked up. So it's very helpful for a lot of people to kind of understand their trauma responses to best know that that's what's happening when they're in these situations. Thank you. So we as a community are experiencing collective trauma right now, thanks to COVID. When we start having events again, when we start coming back together again as a community, um, are there things that we should look out for, that we should be worried about, that we should watch for in other people or try and avoid within our events to help us reintegrate um, after this collective trauma? The difficulty, as I mentioned before, that it's a collective trauma is that everyone's going to behave and react differently. I often tell people as we entered this, a lot of my more introverted people 
were losing their minds. And I would say it's because they lost their natural coping skills. A lot of people aren't a fan of therapy and it's fine. I don't take it personally. But that's because a lot of things within their daily life had therapeutic value. I used to make fun of the gym bros because I'm like, oh, they're off to their play date. They're going to the gym for CrossFit. But it's true. It was their little community, much like when the puppy community, their CrossFit community was their people. They would hang out with all the time. They'd work out together. They'd build together. But because of COVID, they could no longer be in person. So all of a sudden, they were having all these mental health, depression, anxiety, and so confused. So moving forward, as things are opening up, it's going to be incredibly difficult for these people because we've been told for a year not to socialize. We've literally been told and trained and conditioned to stay six feet away, to put your mask on, don't talk to anybody else. And we've lost some of those social skills. So there'll be a lot of people that you'll see kind of similar to little kids who are trying to dip their toe in the water, kind of edging, edging their way back in. They'll have their mask. They're not sure if they should wear it or not. They stumble with their words because oh, I'm talking to a human, not through Zoom. It's, there's going to be a little bit of a difficulty with some people naturally reengaging. With the added pressure that, as I mentioned before, and all the trial responses, some people are just going to dive right in. They're not going to care. They're going to run back to life as normal. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a lot of push and pull between those two types of communities and responses. That being said, and obviously pro-vaccination. So if you can get vaccinated, if you're able to, and you don't have an allergy or anything like that, by all means, you know, let's make sure that you're safe and out of the hospital. Um, but allow yourself that, that grace and that space to naturally activate to these spaces. Because even when things are closer to clear, even when things are better, there's still going to be that struggle, not only socializing, but also just kind of re-engaging with people. It's been mm-hmm. so long. Mm-hmm. The only beautiful thing to come out of COVID is everyone really truly understanding and valuing their mental health and really honestly seeking services however they need to. You know, whether it's being more introspective and really thinking about Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, and how they play a role into all of this, or whether looking into their own anxiety, depressions, and trauma and how to better themselves. The only beautiful thing that's happened is people really kind of putting mental health in the forefront and really trying to destigmatize these services. So there we have it. I think the biggest takeaways from these two conversations is the need for open, honest, and constant discussion of mental health. We need to make space for these discussions. We need to make space in our own lives to check in and decide whether we're okay or whether it would be helpful to seek services of a mental health professional. And remember, you can establish a working relationship with a therapist before you have a crisis or urgent need. That way, if something does come up, you already have the baseline discussion in place, and you and your therapist can work on the particular situation without having to get the backstory in at the same time. Again, we need to make space for these discussions in our own lives, with our friends to check in on them, within our community events to offer support and understanding, and in our society to make sure everyone feels listened to and able to face their lives fully equipped. Start talking, folks. Thanks for listening to The Dog Dish, and special thanks to Pup Dodger and Michael Gutierrez for their time, perspectives, and insights in this episode. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy these conversations and want to keep them coming, if these episodes help you feel connected in times of isolation, please help support the show's production. Imagine if you and I had these chats in a bar and you'd say, let me buy you a drink. 
Consider sending that along to make sure everyone, everywhere, can benefit from these discussions. Just follow the Become a Patron link at dogdishshow.com. And thanks for helping out. In the meantime, go train your favorite podcast player to fetch, so you'll hear the next episode once it's released. Or you can go visit dogdishshow.com for all episodes, for more information about the show, and to get in touch. But until then, you stay. Stay tuned for more, that is. Arf.